for you. Luke chapter 17. I want to bring you a message this morning that I've entitled, Be On Your Guard. Be On Your Guard. As we've been working our way through Luke's gospel, we've seen how chapters 1 through 3 was this time of preparation for the arrival of the promised Messiah. That included details about his birth, his boyhood, even the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those chapters covered about a span of 30 years of his life. From chapter 4 and verse 14 all the way to chapter 9 and verse 50, we saw that this was a time of identification, where Jesus primarily ministered in Galilee and performed many miracles and signs and wonders in order to serve as a confirmation that he was indeed the Son of Man and the Son of God. And this period lasted for about a year and a half of his life. But now we're in just months away from his crucifixion at the hands of evil men. From chapter 9 and verse 51, we've seen that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem as he makes his way there until about chapter 19 and verse 27. He hasn't taken a direct route there and a direct line there because it wouldn't actually take him that long to get there. But he's been sort of zigzagging his way there. And all the while, as we've been going, we found that this has been really, for us, a time of instruction. Although this long section from 951 to chapter 19 and verse 27, this period really only lasts for about six months of his life, but it contains the bulk of his teaching, usually in the form of parables. And as we've seen this develop, this instruction was usually given to one of three different groups of people. The first group of people that we see frequently is the crowds, those who were uncommitted, they were curious about the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 4.42 tells us that crowds came searching for him. Luke 5.15 says that we're told that they were large crowds. Luke 8.42, it says that they had amassed in such a number that they were pressing against him. And then, in more descriptive manner, we saw in verse 1 of chapter 12, we're told that under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people gathered together, that they were stepping on one another. Now, this wasn't just a few thousand people from all over Israel, but this was literally tens of thousands of people were coming to hear the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second group of people that we saw the Lord addressed is the Pharisees. Now remember, there was about 6,000 of these guys running around first century Israel, and they would have been found in any town that would have had a synagogue. Remember, the Jews would erect a synagogue in any village or town that would have had ten or more Jewish men in that town. And so some villages and some towns had multiple synagogues within the same town, much like the Southern Baptist Convention likes to throw multiple churches in the same town. But the Pharisees were the prevailing religious experts of the day, and they were the propagators of a false religion that Jesus so frequently confronted. They were full of pride. They were full of hypocrisy. They were lovers of money. They loved the chief seats in the synagogue. They picked out the places of honor when they were invited to a dinner, and they invited over only those who could ever repay them back in kind. 
They wore the long robes in the marketplace in order to be noticed by men. They loved the long, respectable greetings from the people who would give it to them in public and say things like, Good morning, Rabbi Eleazar, glorious doctor of the Torah, repository of the Solomonic epigrams, keeper of the melodious psalms, son of Amos, son of Saul, son of... and on and on and on it went. They made sure that they neglected their physical appearance when they were fasting so that people would know exactly what they were doing. They offered long prayers simply for appearance sake. Everything that they did was for the sole purpose of being elevated and esteemed by men. All the while, at the same time, they were experts at really covering and concealing carefully their own inward heart corruption. The third group of people that our Lord addressed was the disciples. They were the learners. They were his students, those who had dropped their nets and their fishing gear and their very livelihoods to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There were, of course, the disciples of John the Baptist and even the disciples of the Pharisees that we see in Matthew twenty-two sixteen and Mark two eighteen, And even in John chapter 9, verse 28, we see that there was some disciples of Moses, but primarily... When you see Jesus addressing the disciples in the four Gospels, of those 233 times that the word disciple is used, 227 of those times, it is referring to those who had left everything to follow and to learn from the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that the Pharisees represented, Jesus wanted his disciples to live in complete opposition If the Pharisees were full of pride, he wanted his disciples to uh, live in humility. If they were full of hypocrisy, he wanted his disciples to live in integrity. If they were lovers of money, Jesus wanted his disciples to be lovers of God. Everything that defined the false religion of the Pharisees, Jesus wanted his disciples to live in complete antithesis to. And that's why we've seen this pattern that's been developing over these several chapters. Jesus addressed the crowd, then he addresses the disciples, then the tax collectors and the sinners come here, then the Pharisees grumble and he addresses them, then Jesus says to his disciples, then the Pharisees begin to scoff at him and he addresses them. And so at every turn throughout this section, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to become everything that they are not. And everything that they are, he is teaching them how to avoid that and not become like them. And so the chapter that we have before us in Luke 17 is just another example of that. We begin with Jesus addressing the disciples. Then in verse 20, he is going to answer a question from the Pharisees. And then in verse 22, he will then once again address the disciples. And so we're going to look at a few verses this morning because they deal with two enormous topics in and of themselves, and that is sin and forgiveness. And I'm going to be upfront with you, we won't get completely through the forgiveness part. And so if you're there with me in Luke chapter 17, I want us to read verses 1 through 10 this morning, but we're only going to be really looking at verses 
1 through 3 in a little bit more detail and then pick up in the next coming weeks. And so if you're there with me, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. God's inspired and inerrant Word says this. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which he was commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves and we have done only that which we ought to have done. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We just pray that we would not approach it flippantly or carelessly, but that we would approach it with reverence and an eagerness to hear from you. We pray that you would open our eyes so that we might see and behold wonderful things in your word. And we pray that what we hear today would help purge our lives from sin, deliver us from any earthly affections, and help us to walk in the path of righteousness. We pray these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. In the early 1900s, there was an Australian pastor by the name of Henry Howard who once preached a strong message on sin to his congregation. After that sermon, one of the officers of the church came to him and said, Mr. Howard, we don't want you to talk quite as plainly as you do against sin. Call it a mistake, if you will, but please do not speak so plainly about sin. Pastor Howard then reached up on his shelf and he pulled down a small brown bottle with a cork in it and he handed it to the man. And it was a bottle of strychnine, and it was labeled poison on the side. Then Pastor Howard said to the man, he said, I see what you want me to do. You want me to change the label. He went on and said, suppose I take off this label of poison, and I put some mild label, such as the essence of peppermint. Do you not see what will happen? The milder you make the label, the more dangerous you will make the poison. And that's really what Jesus is trying to teach us here in these opening verses 
in chapter 17. Jesus is a realist when it comes to sin. He doesn't try to relabel sin and make it less dangerous. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it and make it less palatable or more palatable. But Jesus wants you and I to know that sin is deadly and sin is dangerous. And he is passionately hostile to anyone that will keep people coming from him. We've seen that demonstrated in the previous chapter, having just warned the Pharisees about the eternal danger of loving money more than loving God by telling the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus now turns his sights towards the disciples to teach them of the deadly nature of sin. And the fulcrum or the pivot point of these four verses is found at the beginning of verse 3, which says, be on your guard, exclamation point. You as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ should always pay attention to what Jesus has to say when he says, be on your guard. It's a warning sign to you. It's like those deer crossing signs that you, that you have all over the back roads of Union County that the deer really never ever pay attention to anyway themselves, and they pop up everywhere but in front of that sign. But it's a warning sign for you in that area. It's meant to draw your attention of that possibility that a deer might jump out and want to kiss your windshield. And so what Jesus is saying to us here is the warning of the balance of neither causing the offense of sin nor holding a grudge of an offense when someone sins against you. And therefore, you and I must be on our guard. And so if we were to divide these verses up, we're going to go over these in in a matter of a couple weeks, we will see that verses 1 and 2 teach us the seriousness of causing sin. Verses 3 and 4 will teach us the mandate of repentance and forgiveness. Verses 5 and 6, which we'll get to later again in the coming weeks, will teach us of the reality and power of faith. And then in verse 7 through 10, we'll, we'll hear and see the character and the duty of Christian service. So first of all, the seriousness of causing sin. In verse 1 it says, He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. And so here again we see that Jesus is turning his focus to teaching his disciples who are always nearby. But he says that it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. And this word inevitable here means that, and it's the only time used in the entire New Testament, it means that it can't be anything but otherwise. This word for stumbling block here in the Greek is the word scandalon. And you can kind of hear how we get our English word scandalous there. And the idea behind this word is like that of a trap or a snare. We've all seen those cartoon images where there's a, there's a rock that's lifted up and tilted on its side, and then it's being held upright by a stick, and then there's a string that's attached to the bait, so when the little critter comes and he grabs that bait, the stick gives way, and the rock comes crashing down on the critter. And Jesus, Jesus is using the same word scandalon here as when he rebuked Peter in Matthew 16, 23, when he said, "'Get behind me, Satan!' 
you are a stumbling block or a scandalon to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. You're like a trap to me, Peter, trying to trip me up on what God has purposed and predestined to do. But the literal meaning of this phrase is in the negative connotation. It would read, it is impossible that stumbling blocks not come. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that temptations to sin are sure to come and we're all going to face them. The world is full of traps everywhere you turn. When you turn on your computer, there are salacious ads and stories that are enticing you, like bait. When you click on that TV remote, there are TV commercials and shows that are designed to create discontent and coveting within your heart that you need the newest this and you need the newest that. When you go to the shopping mall, everywhere you turn, the world is full of traps that are going to cause you or tempt you to sin. But even more than that, there are people that can be like a trap. And surely Jesus had in mind the Pharisees who were the purveyors of this false works righteousness system. But there are those who can be a trap and a snare in a couple different ways. First of all, there can be those who are a trap by means of direct temptation, such as in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8, which says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So, Right there, I just want to stop. If you ever want to know what the will of God is for your life, here it is. It's not some great mystery, but God wants you to be sanctified, set apart, holy. But he goes on, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, but verse 6 right here, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. Just as we warned you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. There can also be a trap set by indirect temptation, such as in Ephesians 6.4, that says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. There can be those who are a stumbling block by being a sinful example. In 1 Corinthians 8, verses 9 through 12, with the weaker brother, it says, But take care of this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And so this becomes 
a very practical question that we need to ask ourselves this morning. And it's very simply this. Am I causing someone else to sin? Am I causing others to sin? Is how I speak to my wife causing her to sin? Is how I speak to my husband causing him to sin? Is how I'm speaking to my children causing them to sin? Is how I'm speaking to my brother or or my sister causing them to sin? Is the way I'm living my life causing anyone else to sin? Do my feet go places that they probably should never go that would, people would look at that and cause them to sin? Am I engaging in any activity, no matter where it might be or how private that I think it is? Would that cause another to sin? Do I have integrity when I'm in the workplace so that I may not lead another to sin? Does my complaining spirit and my grumbling nature cause people to be discontent and sin? Does how I interact with my immediate family, my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, my cousin, is there any activity, is there any attitude, are there any words that are coming and flying out of my mouth that would cause them to sin? Does what I click, does what I like, does what I post on the internet and social media cause another to sin? These are very practical questions that we all need to ask ourselves. Or am I living in such a way that when people see me and when they watch my life, and they see how I speak to other people. And they, do they actually see the beauty and the glories and the riches of Jesus Christ being manifested in my life? Does my life, do what they see and what they hear in my life, point people to Jesus Christ? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Is what I am doing, is what I am saying, is my complaining and my attitude causing someone to sin? Does my life point them to Christ? Because your life and your words and your actions and your attitudes are pointing others in either one of two different directions this morning. You are either pointing them towards Christ or you are pointing them away from Jesus Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves very practically this morning, am I causing someone else to sin? And so in essence, in the context of our text this morning, Jesus is saying, don't be like these Pharisees. Don't be a hypocrite and be like the leaven of the Pharisees like he warned us about in Luke chapter 12 and have your life permeate and infect someone to such an extent that you cause them to sin and defect from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because look at the warning sign he gave us. Look in the next verse. He says, but woe to one through whom they come. Jesus pronounces... A woe to those who would cause another to fall into the trap and the snare of sin. And we've seen this word woe before in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11 where he pronounced those series of six woes to the Pharisees 
for leading people into a false and damning religion. It's an Old Testament word for curse or for damnation or for destruction. And anyone who puts a spiritual hindrance before another that would cause them to trip up and fall and lead them sinfully away, Jesus pronounces a woe. And so it is a severe offense. Because look what Jesus says in verse 2. He says this, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now Jesus said a very similar thing in the parallel passage in Matthew 18, 16. And he said this, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This millstone that Jesus is describing here would have been a grinding stone like that of a grist mill where you would grind wheat or flour into flour or maybe corn into cornmeal. And it would have been a very, very heavy stone that would have taken an oxen or a donkey to move around in a circle. It's so heavy that you personally would not be able to lift it. And Jesus is saying that it would be better for you to have that around your neck, thrown into the depths of the sea, than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And these little ones here are not necessarily children, but they are believers. And this verse is not calling for or advocating for a children's ministry department to be started at a church that so many pastors take this verse and try to falsely apply this verse to. But if you want to force it to mean children, then surely it's going to apply to children as well. But what Jesus is trying to say is to hinder the faith of a believer, to hinder the spiritual progress and mar the image and the view of Jesus Christ in another person's life, it would be better for you to be plunged into the bottom of an ocean right now and face the horrifying prospect of that instead of judgment from God, which waits such activity. Jesus, meek and mild, says that suffering this horrific, ghastly fate, this method of Roman execution, the Jews didn't do this, the Romans did, this would be better for you than what you would suffer at the hands of the living God. And this is a warning that Jesus has given us before. If you'll recall, in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, He said, I say to you, my friends... Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear the Lord. Fear God. Because Jesus is issuing a warning here of the danger and the seriousness of causing someone else to be led astray. And this warning is no more greatly applied than to pastors and teachers in the church. James 3.1, it says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Let me tell you, beloved, this is why I stay up till 1 o'clock in the morning before I come in here. 
because this is a serious job. The very words that come out of my mouth, the gospel that comes out of my mouth, be, may be the very last thing you hear before you pull out of here. Eternity awaits. And it has to be taken seriously. It has to be taken with gravity. And so Jesus is saying here as a warning to those who would think that the apex and the height of a Christian life and experience is to become a pastor and a Bible teacher in some way. James is saying, you better wait. You better not be so quick to jump into this. You better soberly and you better circumspectly consider what you are about to do before you do it in terms of teaching and leading a church. But Jesus warns us and tells us, beware not to cause another to stumble. Paul captured this same principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verses 32 and 33 when he said this, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. Inside or outside the church, make sure that the Christian life you are living is seen as lovely before this lost and dying world so that they may in turn glorify God. In heaven. J.C. Ryle writes, quote, The cross of Christ will always give offense. Let us not increase that offense by the carelessness in our daily life. The natural man cannot be expected to love the gospel, but let us not disgust him by our inconsistency. Then he goes on, not only issuing a warning about causing another to sin, but what to do if someone sins against you. He says in verse 3, he says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. So first of all, he says, be on your guard. In other words, take heed. Stay alert. Wake up from your slumber, Christian. Watch out for this. Be watchful of what I am telling you. If your brother sins, Rebuke him. Now this rebuke here, this word is a strong word for a reprimand and admonishment. In other words, if a brother or sister in Christ has committed an offense, we have the spiritual responsibility to go to that person and show him his fault. And presumably the sin that Jesus has in mind here is one that would be to such an extent as he described in verses 1 and 2, a sin that leads people astray. And so the question for you, believer, is this. When you see someone in the church commit a sin that would cause a little one to stumble and that would rob someone of being able to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, what do you do? Because there's a right way and there's a wrong way to confront sin. As John Piper once said, even within your own home, the existence of the word nag in the English language, it exists because there is such a thing as excessive rebuke and excessive exhortation. But how are you and I to rebuke a fellow believer? Here's a pop quiz. Do you A, go and tell the elders? B, 
go and complain to someone else in the church and hoping that they in turn will mention it to someone for correction. C, do you grumble with someone else who just loves juicy gossip just as much as you do? Or D, do you go to your brother or your sister in Christ and you gently and you prayerfully and you lovingly, humbly, patiently ask God to glorify himself through reconciliation. Hopefully you pass the test because the answer is D. You go to that person, you speak truth to them, and you say what needs to be said. You go to that person, you gently confront them in order to demonstrate the tender mercies of Jesus Christ. You go to that person humbly, having confessed your own sin beforehand. You go to that person affectionately, expressing your love for them. You go to them prayerfully, asking God for His help in reconciling the situation. We've got to stop right there. And we've got to pick up from here next time because as I've studied this, this is a time that we have got to talk about forgiveness in greater and greater detail because I think there is some confusion about sin and forgiveness and that I think we need to take this opportunity to look at and to teach and correct. And specifically, we need to ask ourselves this question. When it says in this text, if he repents, is that a conditional statement? Meaning, is Jesus putting some conditions on extending forgiveness to another, or are we to unconditionally and freely extend forgiveness no matter what? No matter what sin, no matter what situation, we just give it. And then, to follow up, if there are no conditions for forgiveness, how in the world can we ever exercise church discipline on someone from Matthew 18? Should we always follow Matthew 18, or is there something that should go by the wayside, and we should cut it out of our Bibles and forget it? Should we bring forth every sin and each and every situation that is committed against us to the level of rebuke to those who have sinned against us? There's a principle, just to give you a little teaser laid out in 1 Peter 4.8, that might be helpful for us until that time. And it says this, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Real love for your family member, real love for your husband or your wife, real love for your brother or your sister, real love for your fellow church member should cover vast majority of transgressions rather than you always coming to them and constantly hauling them out in the open for dissection. And so here's the point of this text that we've covered so far. How are you handling sin in your life? Are you on the guard with your sin in your life so that you don't cause anyone else to stumble? Whether it be in the words that flow out of your mouth, your ungodly attitudes, your complaining, your grumbling, your lack of compassion, or maybe you just have an icy disdain for someone else. Have you sinned against someone that you know 
that you need to go and say some of the hardest words that ever come out of our mouth, and that is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are you also on your guard so that if you see another brother or sister in Christ, that you can lovingly and prayerfully, gently, humbly rebuke them with Christ-like compassion? These are the questions that we need to ask ourselves this morning. And we'll pick up looking more at what forgiveness is and looks like in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, I confess to you that forgiveness is sometimes hard to do to those who have sinned against us. More often than not, we want justice and we don't want mercy. But Father, as we look at our lives, as we go out into this world in the workplace, and amongst our unsaved family members, Lord, lay open bare the sins that we are committing and help us to repent and turn away from those things so that when those people look at us, they see You. They see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ radiating and reflecting from my life. Father, help us to take these words seriously and soberly and consider what You have said to us in Your Word. We pray these things in the name of Your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we uh, get ready to head down to our meal, uh, something I want to point out. According to Google, the time changes this coming week. We had some discussion downstairs as to when that is, and I guess we're going to go with March 11th. So keep that in mind as you adjust your schedule so that everybody shows up on church or do church on time. Let's go ahead and pray for our meal. Uh, Gracious fathers, we have the opportunity uh, to hear your word. Uh, we, We... understand that there are many temptations that we face, um, minor and major, uh, that there is much sin and there's uh, much forgiveness. Just help us to uh, walk the path that you have set through us or for us through your son. Uh, help us to encourage one another and to gently uh, guide one another as we need to. And as we uh, join each other uh, for our meal, may it be a rich time of discussion. Uh, may there be a sweet harmony and an encouragement uh, for us to face the week ahead. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.